What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culturally, that's not a word, podcast. I am very excited to be here again with another Midnight Myth episode, in particular because this is now our part two episode. We started last week with our discussion of Lord of the Rings, book two, The Two Towers, We talked about primarily the novels and not the movies. We got through the first segment of that book. We talked about the Battle of Helm's Deep. We talked about the trees at Orthanc. We talked about the meetings on the road. But we didn't talk about our man Frodo Baggins. We didn't talk about his gardener, friend, and servant Samwise Gamgee, the slithering slinker named Gollum, and nor did we talk about Faramir. So there's a whole lot we didn't discuss last week that we're going to discuss this week. So spoiler wall is up for Lord of the Rings, The Two Tower. This is our two-parter second episode. We're going to focus like we did with our other ones, primarily on the books. So I guess if you haven't read the books, spoiler wall up. And I couldn't be more excited to talk about this. Laurel, how you doing? I am doing great. This has been an interesting journey uh, heading toward the crack of doom at Mordor because, uh, like you said, last week on the podcast, we discussed a whole bunch of big action-packed sequences with every character except our heroes, our ring bearers. And that's because the book splits it up into these two segments where we follow most of the company in the first half. And then in the second half, we actually follow the ring and the ring bearers on their journey east. Um, while it does seem like less happens in this sequence than it does in the first, I am kind of bursting at the seams with things to talk about this episode, whether those are meetings between characters, introductions of characters we haven't seen yet face-to-face in the series, introductions of totally new characters, and some incredible sequences of fear and doom and hope, a light in the darkness. So I'm very excited. There's lots of interesting themes to unpack. I'm ready to do this. Yeah. So structurally, we're not going to reinvent the wheel here. We are talking Lord of the Rings, the two towers. We're going to focus on the books. We're going to focus on the second half of the book, the two towers, really excited to roll up the sleeves and start, you know, 
investigating one of the greatest novels of all time in a series of novels that are considered some of the greatest novels of all time. Before we get too deep into it, before we get really under the hood here with all things Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of news happening. We have a giveaway Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so let's start with the giveaway because that is the most exciting thing on the horizon right now, at least for me. Uh, We are giving away two Lord of the Rings Funko Pops. Uh, We were going to do just one and then we realized that we couldn't split up the incredible pair of Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. So we'll be giving away two Funko Pops that belong together, the two best friends that anyone has ever had, uh, along with a set of Uh, Trivial Pursuit cards that are specifically Lord of the Rings themed. Uh, And that is a standalone set that you can play or you can shuffle it in with your uh, huge Trivial Pursuit set. So that should be a lot of fun for the winner. We'll also throw in a piece of Midnight Myth merch for you. In order to enter the giveaway, you want to head to our Twitter. We are at the Midnight Myth on Twitter. And there is a pinned tweet with some details about the giveaway. Follow the instructions in that tweet and you will be automatically entered. We're going to draw the winner live on the air. Uh, Live, we're recording it, obviously, but when we cover Return of the King in our final episode there, that's when we'll announce the winner. So make sure that you can uh, follow those instructions on the tweet before time runs out. Yeah, and um, we're probably going to take a little bit of a break between Two Towers and Return of the King because we're on this breakneck pace with reading Lord of the Rings. I'm also reading Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Mila Kahl just published this week. Um, So I definitely need a little bit of a break from the fantasy while I'm also focusing on other life work balance things. It won't be long though. So uh, we're not going to delay, but just a little bit of a break. Just as long as we finish the book. So keep an eye out for that. Um, If you wanted to get in touch with us, the best place to do so is Twitter at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can find us at MidnightMyth.com. That's also where you'll find blogs, uh, additional content, and where you can reach out to us directly through the contact form. You can also sign up for our email list, which we'll only email you about once a month, but you'll be the first to hear about new series, about giveaways, about all kinds of things. So definitely check that out. Um, And then if you're enjoying the podcast, I really hope you are. Please uh, consider leaving us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because it really helps us to stay on the charts. If you want to go a little bit further and you have a little bit of change to spare in your pockets uh, in supporting us, you can uh, support us on Patreon, uh, which is where you can pledge us a small monthly donation and you'll get bonus episodes as well as uh, you know additional perks there. Or uh, you can purchase some merch from our merch store, which you'll also find a link to on our website, midnightmyth.com. Sweet. And follow me on Twitter at Derek Jones 198 On with the show. Shall we do a briefest of briefest of recaps here? Sure. Lord of the Rings, The Two Tower, the second half of the book, features Frodo Baggins and his gardener Samwise Gamgee carrying the ring east to Mordor on their mission to destroy it in the fiery pits of Mount Doom. The only problem is they really don't know how to get there, and the terrain is very difficult, and they find themselves lost. They end up being smacked head-on with Gollum, the creature from The Hobbit who had the ring, who is hunting them in an attempt to get the ring back. They confront Gollum, they imprison Gollum, they tie him up, only to have Frodo kind of draw out the goodness in Gollum 
tame him to a certain degree, and they ultimately ask him to be the guide since he knows this really awful, rough, barren land of the East right before Mordor. Gollum has a split personality. From his time with the ring, he has developed two different sets of Gollum. There is Slinker and Stinker, as Sam likes to call them, Smeagol and Gollum, who are constantly in debate and in discussion with each other, and they are trying to get the ring so that they can be again whole with the ring. Frodo and Sam see through Gollum's attempts to manipulate them, realizing that Gollum really wants the ring the whole time. However, considering their situation, how lost they are, and Frodo really wanting to believe that Smeagol or Gollum can be redeemed, they follow him anyway. This puts him in a crash course with Faramir, the younger brother of Boromir, the captain of Gondor. And in this, they see a battle with Faramir, and Frodo and Sam are taken prisoner. A long dialogue happens where they're trying to feel each other out, and Gollum finds himself in a forbidden pool, a pool that is sacred to the people of Gondor and almost gets killed by the Gondorians, in which then Frodo begs to save his life and lures Gollum back in. Famir seeing the inner goodness of Frodo, kind of learning and surmising and deducing what his purpose is and that he does carry the One Ring, decides to let him go to his uh, the rest of his journey, in which Gollum then leads them to the lair of Shelob, a monstrous, intelligent spider that Gollum worships in the hopes that Shelob will kill them and then he could get the ring off of their bones, knowing that Shelob won't eat the ring. Frodo gets stung by, by Shelob. Sam, Sam, wielding Sting and Arendel, the light of the dying star, ends up fighting back Shelob, thinking that uh, Frodo is dead. He takes the ring for himself, only to have a company of orcs come, and he overhears the orcs, realizing that Frodo is A, just paralyzed from the venom of the spider, and B, is not dead. Sam then resolves that he will find his master at all costs, and that is the end of the book. Wonderful recap. I think the very last line is the most classic cliffhanger you can possibly imagine. It's, yes, Frodo was alive, but he was taken by the enemy. End novel. What a horrible cliffhanger to leave readers on. You really want to know what's next. I just want to know, Laurel, starting off, we have now read the books. We've rewatched the movie. How are you feeling about this particular piece? Give me your like gut reaction, anything you want to say. The floor is open. You know, um, when I first started this particular section of the book, I knew that we were going to segment this podcast to put this as its own separate uh, installment. And the first part of this, before the encounter with Smeagol, and then even after the taming of Smeagol, uh, it's, uh, it's a little tough to get through. It is a long, meandering sequence, and it is uh, you feel the despair of the characters, that they are wandering lost through this barren land, and you're wondering if anything's going to happen. You're wondering, is this the whole rest of the book? Are they really just going to be wandering hopelessly around this desert uh, wasteland? And so that's kind of how I felt going in. And by the end of it, I, uh, I I felt really amazed by the work that had gone into it. I felt um, very much like the, the text vindicated itself and earned uh, that despair because of how much uh, theme it plays with, how much the dialogues between Frodo and Sam, 
the negotiations between them and Gollum, uh, and the very interesting segment where they are imprisoned by Faramir, uh, how those work together to really reinforce the themes set up in Fellowship and in the first half of this book. Uh, and I, I felt it like it was an extremely rich uh, showing of the text. I also feel like some of Tolkien's best writing happens in this segment. Um, even in the lair of Shelob, I think one of the most beautiful quotes from Tolkien's entire repertoire comes in this. I wrote it down. He says, quote, as if his indomitable spirit had set its potency in motion, the glass blazed suddenly with like a white torch in his hand. It flamed like a star that leaping from the firmament sears the dark air with intolerable light, end quote. And that just kind of set my soul on fire. I was like, am I reading a romantic poem? Am I reading Milton? Am I reading Shelley? Uh, it's some of his best, most artistic work with language. So I'm feeling very good about this in general. Uh, what about you? I largely agree with you. When we first started the second half, there were parts of it that I felt meandering. I felt a little disengaged and I felt like, man, I really should be enjoying this more. I remember enjoying this more. Yeah. But at the point where Famir interacts with the, the Frodo and Sam and Gollum, that I found incredibly intriguing and I also felt the sequence with Shelob to be some of the best writing I've ever read. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you, and that's kind of how the second half of this book works. It is a crescendo. It is very slow. Instead of the first half, which has multiple sets of characters in different places, so you follow Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas to a point. Then you go backwards and follow Merry and Pippin to a point. And then slowly those stories emerge into one actual timeline. This one just follows essentially for point of view characters, just Frodo and Sam. Yeah. And you're staying in their point of view the whole time and then it'll bounce back and forth. Also, I love that we get Sam's point of view. Oh man. For you, the you first time. You really feel like you're truly in his head. You get into how he thinks and you really start to feel the compassion and the inner workings of the character. And it really is a crescendo to a very uncertain climax. And as it's going, it gets better and better and better. I loved just a few anecdotes that I really enjoyed. When Sam sees the first man fallen, when there's the battle between the Gondorians and the men of the East that Sauron is bringing to his um, call, Sam can't help but stop and think, I wonder what that person was like. Oh, yeah. Were they completely evil? They're not an orc. I wonder if they thought they were the hero in their own story. I wonder if they thought they were doing good. Maybe they liked to garden. And I thought there was just this nuance of what it's like for war to happen and what it's like to go through the trauma of war to see a fallen soldier and think, that's not too dissimilar to me. And to show this incredible empathy from Sam, I thought was fantastic. Just one little anecdote to put, to pick out there. And I do think there's a ton of stuff for us to mine. I think there's a lot of good Midnight Myth material in the second half of this book. And I'm curious in terms of one of the, the things that I, I have found up until this point is that geography, a sense of place, determines a lot of what we see from who the people are that live in that place 
and the challenges that the characters have to navigate getting from one point to that place to the other. Also in the first set of books up until this point is the sense of borders. The idea that the geography has a start and a stop, it's clearly demarcated, and once you once you cross the border from one side to the other, things then inevitably change. Do you think in the second half, because so much of it is Frodo and Sam wandering aimlessly, not knowing where they are, does that analysis still hold up? Well, I think that's a good question. I think the point is proved through showing you kind of the opposite. Uh, what we've seen up until now are a series of borders, are a series of clearly demarcated thresholds, are, uh, you know, throughout fellowship and especially in uh, the way that our characters traverse the land in the first half of the two towers. We see interaction with different cultures, how geography, uh, even between people of the same race, can absolutely define uh, you know, your personal outlook on the world, can absolutely define culture. So in Fellowship, we talked about how just by being closer to water, closer to rivers, certain hobbits are more predisposed to swimming in boats uh, and how that can define major differences. Um, what we see in The Ring Goes East in the second half of The Two Towers is uncultivated land, is wasteland. Um, and that is the, the direct opposite of what we've seen before, where land is uh, either tended by you know farmers or landowners or it is managed by you know a, a, an occupying culture or kingdom of some kind that is allowed to give it uh, some sort of character and what we see for the most part in the second half of this book is land with no character land without growth land without fertility land that is rocky and barren uh, and I think that goes to sort of prove the analysis that you've put up because the absence of those things uh, makes us feel despair. It makes our characters feel despair. It makes us feel fear. It makes us feel unsafe because there is no forest, no canopy to guard us from watchful eyes or wraiths on wings. Uh, there is nowhere to hide. There is no food to pluck from trees uh, and there is nothing to tend. Um, it's the equation of wasteland, of barrenness, uh, with war, with devastation, with destruction. This is something that goes uh, back to Celtic mythology. It's a, a mythological motif that comes up a lot, uh, the wasteland. It's something that uh, links barrenness with curses or with lingering evil or darkness. And if we take it that wasteland equals war, that barrenness equals destruction, then obviously fertility and fecundity of the land equals peace, equals the ability to care for that land, equals uh, the ability to occupy a land and to uh, have some sort of exchange with it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why one of our great heroes is a gardener in Samwise Gamgee. Um, you know, another 20th century writer equated uh, the wasteland as the mythological motif, as the motif for medieval romance, uh, and the connections to the Fisher King with war. And that's T.S. Eliot in his great poem, uh, The Wasteland, which was written in 1922. And I want to read a small quote from it because I feel like it corresponds to Tolkien's imagery here. Uh, he says, quote, What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images, end quote. Uh, it's just an incredible way to conjure 
the, the despair that comes with that wasteland. You know, it's an interesting thought that you have there, because I do think, genuinely speaking, there are three different types of geographical landscapes um, in this simplest way that you deal with in Tolkien, at least up till the two towers. There are civilized lands, which are cultivated. They have a system of organization and government, a sense of people and continuity to them, and they are cultivated. They bear fruit and food for the people that live on them, and they are often tailored to the particular needs. So the people of Gondor live on plains, and hence they use horses. The people in Shire in the Shire are isolationists, hence they are nosy with their neighbors, and they're really good at growing food, and since they are very prosperous, they like to eat too much, and vice versa, it goes on and on. Then there are the wilds, right? The uncultivated lands. The forests. Where there is a ton of growth, and those are equally as dangerous and treacherous to our heroes as the wastes. But... There's one thing that Tolkien does add, which is supernatural aid. Old Man Willow may try to eat you, but Tom Bombadil will come along and save you. You might get lost and suffocated around um, thousand-year-old angry trees in Fanghorn, but Treebeard will come, and he will be your ally in the wars to come. So they are dangerous, these wild forests, these wild lands, but there is also good things that grow within them too. So clearly what's better is to cultivate in the Tolkien sense is the civilized lands in which there are, you know, a clear demarcation of these are our borders. This is how we'll act within our borders. These are the laws within our borders, our norms and customs, which are going to be linked to the type of land that we govern. And we will not be abusive and they will not be barren. They will bring fruit, the wilds with supernatural aid, but lots of perils. And now we get a really good glimpse of the wastelands, the lands of pure evil. The lands themselves do not bring fruit. The water in Mordor, as as uh, our heroes get closer, Faramir warns Frodo and Sam, don't drink the water. It is itself a poison. Yeah. Because the land itself can't even produce clean water for you to drink. So don't, if you, the closer you get to Minas Morgul, don't drink any of that water that's flowing in this particular, you know, direction. Itself becomes the evil, as if the evil creatures that live there are a product of that same evil geography. And I don't know whether it's the evil lived there, hence the geography came became evil, or the evil geography begot the evil that lives there, but clearly... We now have Frodo and Sam in the den of evil. And the first way we know it, there's no food, there's no water, there's no shelter, and even marshes, which are known to have lots of wildlife and in them. In a Tolkien sense, the marshes have ghosts that inhabit them, not lizards and snakes and all sorts and of biodiversity. Cool. Yeah. No, it's it's actual dead things that live within these marshes. I think this is a really interesting distinction that you've brought up between the wastes, the wilds, and the cultivated land, and how the cultivated land uh, is a balance between those, between those two wild extremes. Uh, I also want to, something that just occurred to me is that in all of the wilds that we get, in all of these lands that have have gone totally overgrown, that have no... um, 
no sense of being stewarded by anyone. Uh, the figures that inhabit it are usually set well outside of the conflict between the forces of good and evil. Uh, usually they are characters who don't care or who are not plugged in to the conflict, like Tom Bombadil, who you know would never join the Council of Elrond, would never even think to want to destroy the ring. He's just not concerned with it. Until uh, you know they're convinced by Merry and Pippin, the Ents are the same way. They're not interested in being uh, involved in any type of conflict. And later we'll meet Shelob, and there is a line about how she cares not for rings or orcs or any of this. It has nothing to do with her. All she cares about is killing and consuming. Uh, so there is this sense that uh, the the wastes as this land inhabited by the evil is the opposite of. Uh, the wilds, which are inhabited by apathetic, uh, self-interested beings. Just an interesting thing that just occurred to me. Love it. Absolutely love it. Let's pivot slightly, yeah. if you'll permit. Let's talk a little bit about the dynamics between Frodo and Sam and Gollum. I would love to. Gollum, uh, we finally come face to face with him for the first time in this series. We haven't actually really seen him since The Hobbit, except as a figure lurking at the outskirts of the journey of the Fellowship. Uh, and I, I truly believe that Gollum is one of the best characters in this series and also one of the most wretched characters in all of literature. So I would love to discuss and unpack with you. I mean, tell me more about that. Yeah, go on. Uh, unpack. Yeah, I mean, this is a character who is clearly pretty vile. Um, you know, he's described uh, variously as insect-like, as beastly, um, and his language is very crude and unusual. He eats things raw. He is uh, not civilized at all in the way that he behaves. Um, but he is some, he's a character who invokes great pity uh, alongside disgust. Uh, it's a really interesting mixture, mixture that uh, Tolkien conjures up in us in terms of our uh, relationship to this character and Frodo's relationship, especially to this character. While Sam is outright disgusted and never, you know, once feels an ounce of pity for him, Frodo is constantly moved to compassion for this character, uh, likely because he sees him as a, a version of what he could become, as a ring bearer, as somebody who carried this uh, burden for so long. Uh, Gollum is a shadow figure of what he could really be. Uh, and Gollum gives us moments where we really feel like he could turn a corner. He could become, you know, a, a good, uh, good creature, a good being within this universe. And time and time again, he lets his evil side win over. Um, but I, I just think he's a fascinating figure. Yeah, you know, I really do too. As we think of Gollum, you mentioned him as uncivilized. What is interesting about Gollum is that through his history that we learned in the first book, he didn't start that way. Yeah. He devolved into uncivilized. The fact that he had this ring for such a long time, isolated himself, became obsessed with it, that his psyche literally fractured into two different parts, into, in part to justify his murder, another to help him survive, another, I'm thinking probably because 
sitting in a cave staring at a ring. He got bored. You know, like he really got bored. Yeah. So he had needed someone to talk to. So he started talking to himself. And these these two halves of Gollum reflect a sort of mirroring that happens in this book, The Two Towers. So this is a book about two towers. There are two Gollums. There is Sam and Frodo. There is, it starts with Boromir. It ends with Famir. Yeah. There is a sense of mirroring and doubling that's happening throughout this entire book. But I do think that Gollum is the pessimistic aspect of Hobbit, Hobbit culture or Hobbit nature. The idea that a Hobbit could be consumed by the ring so much so that they can forget the taste of bread, not even be able to look in the sun on a warm day and become one with the wastelands so much so that they can navigate this dark and evil terrain. They start to fall into a sick worshiping relationship to Shelob and becomes one with this more Dorian terrain the whole time Gollum obsessed with possessing the thing that which he lost that Frodo has contrasted to Frodo who becomes a Lord of the ring in the book. Yeah. In the movie, the ring has total possession with him towards the end of the two towers and the start of return of the King, which splits up Frodo's story in the movies between those two movies in the book. He becomes a Lord of the ring in this respect. When Frodo is confronting Gollum slash Smeagol and Gollum says he'll swear to the ring. Frodo says, I am the master of the precious and I will hold you to this. When he starts to suspect Smeagol slash Gollum is wavering, Sam looks at him and thinks, you know, Frodo's never going to understand that Gollum is duplicitous because though Frodo is kind and though Frodo is the wisest person that Sam has ever met, save for Gandalf and Bilbo, he thinks his kindness is equal to blindness. His kindness will override the reality. In other words, he thinks Frodo is too nice and too naive to see who Gollum really is. And Gollum is trying to convince Frodo not to go through the Black Gate, that the ring will end up in the hands of Sauron. And he says, you know, one thing that you could do is take it this other way. You could do this, or you could give it to me, or you could do that, or you could do this. And Frodo goes, no, you betrayed yourself, Gollum. You mentioned that you could take the ring. You'll never take the ring. I am the master of this ring, and if I willed it, I could kill you with the power of this ring. And understand, I now know that you are duplicitous and that you secretly want the ring while pretending to serve me. And Sam's like, oh God, kindness that Frodo has does not equal blindness. Frodo is not naive to Gollum's and Smeagol's duplicity. He completely understands that Gollum will actually try to take the ring from him. And I thought this was showing how that Gollum and Frodo are not mirrors, but opposites. They both have the ring. Gollum desires it. He wants to possess it. He wants to hoard it for himself. Frodo doesn't want the ring, but he has it and he has to carry it. It is a burden. Gollum wants to keep the ring for forever, to live for forever with his fractured psyche. Frodo wants to destroy the ring 
and be rid of it and just return and be a normal hobbit. But because of this shared common experience that has fate has thrusted them together, that they must both be on this journey together, Frodo is able to show a mastery over Smeagol, which is a way to say he can master the part of him that is also slowly becoming obsessed with the ring. And I think this... I'd like to open up another discussion in line with this. In the movies, Frodo is falling to the temptation of the ring by the time of the two towers. He is so tempted by the power of the ring that Gollum is able to manipulate Frodo into sending Sam aside. Frodo has to be in Shelob's lair by himself and Gollum disappears. And Sam, who still loves Frodo so much, doesn't allow that to happen and charges in and saves him at the very end. The book, it's very different. Frodo is never fully bought in to Gollum. He never sends Sam aside. He never thinks that Gollum would be the better ally than Sam. And that difference there, we're starting to see for the first time a major, major divergence in theme and in plot from the books to the movie. And I had forgotten gotten of the difference rereading the two towers i'm like oh wait a minute Gollum never gets a manipulated hold over frodo at all Gollum is totally um i'm sorry frodo is totally seeing through Gollum's bs yeah, yeah. the whole time what do you think that means to make that change does it fundamentally change frodo's character from the movies to the books I think it does. Uh, I mean, we literally have a scene in the Two Towers movie where Frodo is stroking the ring as he falls asleep. Uh, that's not something that occurs in the books. Uh, and it's, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say that it's a bad decision. I think that Peter Jackson made uh, a lot of strategic decisions in order to make this text cinematic because The Lord of the Rings is not cinematic. It just isn't. Um, and I think that the the movie adaptations are extraordinary for how they take this source material and translate it to a totally new medium in a way that uh, is respectful to the material. But this does absolutely change uh, change the meaning for me. I don't have a problem with it. It's just I, I think it's it's in the service of conflict of making you know these movies make sense and making us hold on um, you know to emotional beats as we're watching it in a way that, you know, the text doesn't serve. Yeah, in The Two Towers, Frodo, the movie, almost gives up. And Zam gives him a rousing speech and says, you can go on. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and that's the end of the movie, and it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm crying. Like in, and in the end of The Two Towers, Sam and Frodo are put through an intense trial, and only Sam comes out relatively unscathed, and he now has the ring and Frodo has been imprisoned by the enemy. Very different endings. And to me, the movies show Frodo as clearly being tempted by the ring that makes it when we all know what happens in the end that Frodo doesn't destroy the ring, being like, oh, of course he didn't. The entire time, he's been obsessed with it. Whereas the book shows him as a Lord of the Ring at this point. Yeah, There's no doubt in our mind at the end of this book that if Frodo were standing on the edge of Mount Doom, that he couldn't cast it into the fire, the ring of power, that is. Whereas the movie is just like, of course he can't. And I think that changes that moment because 
Frodo at this point is still the kindest and wisest and Sam thought naive, but not naive hobbit. Yeah. Well, and it's an incredible, uh, unexpected thing from this character too. Uh, I mean, Frodo has always been brave for a hobbit. We've already seen him undertake incredible challenges and make really difficult choices, but he's not Aragorn. You know, he's not a kingly figure. He is not someone who has ever been particularly commanding, even though he has some status over other hobbits. And to see him take command and be like, I am your Lord, I am your master, and you will serve me, is a really unexpected and uh, kind of amazing thing. You were talking about mirrors from the you know beginning of the book and the end of the book, and you had mentioned in our last episode um, Aragorn you know, showing his kingliness to Eomir and the Rohirrim on the road and, uh, you know, growing a size. And it's as though, like, fire comes from his eyes or something like that. And this kind of happens to Frodo. He he grows a little bit. He becomes kingly, uh, which is really quite amazing. Yeah, totally. Um, which also reminds me of another sort of mirror. So Aragorn and Eomir have their dialogue Frodo and Faramir have a very long scene together. It They get picked up at the end of the battle, and then they get taken after they are, you know, blindfolded, hooded into this sacred, you know, wood of the Gondorians. That's not a word, the Gondorians. I just made that up, of the men of Gondor. Yeah. Uh, but we can call them Gondorians. Anyway, and that's where the sacred pool is. And they have this very long dialogue in the um, in the book. And I think it'd be fun to kind of unpack that a little bit. I would love to. Uh, the sacred hideout is called Henneth Anun. Um, and I love that because I've already been talking a little bit about Celtic mythology and its influence on this part of the book. Um, and Anun sounds very similar to the Celtic Otherworld, Anwen or Anuven. So uh, I think that Tolkien is definitely making a reference there. So contrasting this wasteland of Celtic mythology that they've been walking through to the other world, which feels kind of like a fairy realm, a dream that they're walking into. Really a kind of wonderful contrast here. Totally. So similar to the Aragorn Amir scene, Frodo is essentially surrounded by a superior military force. That military force does actually seize him and take him to a place against his will. And in that, Frodo and Faramir, much like Aragorn and Amir, have a long discussion in which it is clear to each other very early on in that discussion that they're dealing with two very noble individuals and that uh, Faramir has the similar conflict to Amir. I have laws that I'm sworn to defend, as a captain of Gondor, and those laws mean that I must follow certain things. For example, Frodo is not allowed to just wander through these lands unless he is presented to Denethor, and Denethor grants him, Denethor being Faramir's father, the steward of Gondor, if Denethor grants him passage, Faramir doesn't have the legal right to do that. And so, similar to Aemir with Aragorn, and both ultimately decide to say, there's a right thing to do here, and that supersedes the legal thing to do, which is to let these allies pass and to let them go on their quest and to try to aid them on that quest. Now, Frodo, unlike Aragorn, Aragorn just kind of tells all, says this is 
everything we've been through, this is how we got here. Frodo can't really do that. His last encounter with a man was Boromir, who tried to take the ring from him and maybe even kill him. The ring is a secret burden at this point, knowing that if it gets into the hands of men, it will be easier for it to get into the hands of the enemy, that Frodo has to be very strategic, he has to be very intelligent, he has to be on his wits. He doesn't just tell him everything. However, he never lies. He never misrepresents himself, but he only tells as much as he can tell until he gets to the point where, like, I can't tell you anymore. And in fact, it's Sam who lets slip that they have the ring. And then once Faramir realizes, A, Frodo came from Rivendell, B, he traveled with Boromir, C, something happened between Frodo and Boromir that was not good, and then D, he doesn't realize that you know Boromir had died. The sequence in which Faramir describes seeing Boromir's body and Frodo being like, that's not actually possible considering where this river is, where you were, like, you know, there's no way that could happen. And Faramir's like, yeah, but it did. As if Faramir had a vision of Boromir's death and a vision of the, hon- the, the horn of Gondor breaking. And at the end of it, Faramir shows the value and virtue of the race of men. Unlike his brother, who reached for this ultimate weapon to use it for his own glory and for his own purposes and to his own demise, Faramir says, if the ring were lying on the side of the road, I wouldn't pick it up. I don't want this ring of power. In fact, go with Grace Frodo and go on your journey. Let me give you a walking stick and gives them walking sticks that turn out to be blunt weapons that save their lives fighting Shelob. I love this sequence. Uh, you know, last week I talked about the death of Boromir as one instant, the beginning uh, of this book, the beginning of the two towers, that is an emotional engine for all of the events that happen afterwards. And I don't think there's any place where it is more present than here in this dialogue between Frodo and Faramir. Uh, for Frodo's next encounter with a man to be the brother of the last man that he saw the face of, uh, who died wishing that he could have atoned with Frodo, uh, I think is incredibly specific and incredibly intentional. For me, Faramir in this dialogue functions as uh, the ghost of Boromir. Not literally, but Faramir is a character who looks like him, who shares a history, who knows Boromir intimately, knows that something went down between him and Frodo, and offers as much apology and atonement as he possibly could. Uh, It's almost as though Boromir is emotionally present with them in this moment and is offering that redemption that he was not able to achieve in life. I think it's incredible. Uh, We also get a lot of the backstory of these characters. We learn a lot about Gondor. We learn a lot about the leadership structures now that the kings, the line of kings of Gondor are in exile and have been for several generations. And we start to understand uh, a little bit more about Boromir's psychology through Faramir as his sort of mirror opposite. Once again, seeing these uh, you know, dark mirrors in character doublings. 
Uh, we learn that they are the sons of Denethor, the steward of Gondor. I think he's the 26th steward of Gondor. Um, and there is a major difference set up between stewardship and kingship. Uh, Faramir tells a story about Boromir asking his father, how long does it take to make a steward a king if the king does not return? And Denethor says 10,000 years would not be long enough in Gondor. In some other kingdoms, maybe a few years, but 10,000 years in Gondor would not be enough because a steward is not a king. We've had 26 generations of stewards and no kings. I think that this uh, is, is going to be interesting to track through Return of the King when we meet Denethor especially, but we are setting up these uh, very interesting doubles of leadership, these very interesting different ways to cultivate land or different ways to shepherd people or different ways to lead in the world. The dictionary defines stewardship as the job of supervising or taking care of something, such as an organization or property. And I think that's a good definition, but it doesn't quite satisfy me with regard to the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to offer another definition that is taken from a sort of religious uh, or biblical definition. And that's uh, stewardship is utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. Uh, while Lord of the Rings has a very subtle uh, and not uh, usually overt uh, Christian message to it, uh, I want to sort of strip away the actual Christianity of this and just talk about it on a kind of spiritual term. Uh, utilizing and managing all God's resources for the betterment of his creation. That implies responsibility. That implies leadership through um, understanding resources, leadership through understanding people, and leadership as a means of making the world and all people within it better. And I think that is an incredible, um, just an incredible thing to take with us through the Lord of the Rings as we examine the different types of heroes that are presented within, from the Aragorns to the Frodo's to the Sam's, to the Faramir's, who do you think represents this best is a big question I'm interested in answering. Yeah, I mean, any clues on to that answer or? I mean, Sam, uh, I'm, I'm working towards this argument that Sam is like the great hero of the Lord of the Rings, uh, but this is just one element that gets me closer to understanding that. Oh, I, I do think it falls into the idea that civilization is inherently good when it is cultivates the land, when it's connected to the land, when it stewards the land. Yeah. And it is bad when it abuses it and makes the land barren or when it completely ignores it and it becomes a wild, um, you know, overgrown forest that your only hope is a, you know, supernatural intervention. So I think it fits within that kind of motif. I also think that in both Faramir and Aemir, both of those characters in this book have the ability to completely impede the heroes from moving forward. In the case of Faramir, to great calamity, he could seize the ring for himself, and that would be the ruin and end of the free peoples of Middle-earth for forever, because presumably men would wield the ring, Sauron would know where it is, he'd send his Nazgul, they'd kill Faramir, the ring would be back with Sauron, and he would cover all of Middle-earth with a second darkness, right? And the fact that Faramir chooses to ignore 
the laws of his land in favor of doing what's right is another example of a of a morality that is cross-cultural, that doesn't care about the boundaries, that doesn't care about the geography, that people should follow, and that supersedes the normal day-to-day ruling morality as writ by and told by stewards, lords, and kings. And I think that is a fundamental of Tolkien's The Two Towers, is that there is a higher moral truth that people should ascribe to. And when the laws of the land get in between what is truly right and wrong, you must act in accordance with what's right. Because surely if the laws tell you, stop the person whose job it is to destroy all evil. And save the world. You got to ignore those freaking laws, you know, like, because yeah, the evil does need to be stopped. That's more important than the laws that, you know, Denethor set out. And and it's not an easy distinction. So it's, we say this quite flippantly, like when we're confronted with these scenarios, it's a foregone conclusion that the virtuous characters would reach that conclusion to, you know, let this, this higher moral truth ring through over the legal truth. Yeah. That's not so clear in these dialogues with Frodo and Famir that that's how it's going to end up. They're playing a bit of rhetorical dance. Famir's trying to pierce Frodo's rhetoric. Frodo is not going to lie. He's not going to lower himself by telling him a not truth, but he's only going to tell the truth to a point and then he's going to evade. Famir like strategically moves the conversation away from his men because he realized that, hey, it's easier to say things with the three of us than in front of men because they have ideas and pressures. And he's constantly poking and prodding, trying to figure out who this Frodo character is and what this Frodo character is doing. And it is, it's an accident, a mistake that Sam blurts out that he has the ring that Faymir is just like, I get it now. Boromir tried to take the ring from you. You can't tell anyone else. I wouldn't, if I were you too, I know the laws say I can't let you pass. You can pass. I know the laws say that I have to kill Gollum. I'm going to let him live because he's your guide. I don't trust him and I don't think you should, but since he's helping you and you're telling me he's helping you, Frodo, anyone that you say henceforth that can pass through Gondor can pass. So say Famir by want of death. You know, like he gives him the ultimate pass because he's just like, you've proven to me that you are on you are right, you are true, you are doing the virtuous deeds. I now know how important your journey is and I'm going to let you do it and I will make sure until my last dying breath that it won't stop. I love at one point, Famir says to him, you know, there's more to your story that I'd like to hear. Hopefully, when all of this is done, we'll have time for you to sit there and tell me more details because I'd love to hear them. Showing that like, a, Famir believes he'll succeed. And B, that based on that success, he'll have, Frodo will be alive. Yeah. And that they might be able to sit and talk to each other. And there's something so fundamentally optimistic. The idea that these two people that could end up becoming enemies meet on the road and becoming allies. Uh, and it, it is really encouraging and really engaging to sit there and and read this. And I think it's, one of the best sequences 
thus far of the entire series. I agree. I find it totally gripping and emotionally satisfying. There's a huge amount of trust that has to be built between these two characters to make this compact possible. And then the compact is an incredibly honor-bound troth that they share between one another. And that trust is gained through the relationship to Boromir, too. So again, the ghost of this character is bringing people together on the road and allowing them to find ways to trust each other. Uh, you hinted at the, uh, you know, Faramir by law is needing to uh, execute Gollum based on his uh, swimming in the sacred forbidden pool, correct? That's what happens? Correct. Uh, and he's swimming through the pool because he wants to eat fish. Uh, I just have to mention this because of my love of medieval literature uh, and because we started by talking about wastelands and Celtic mythology and the Fisher King, but I do think that you could make a case that Gollum is a bit of an analog of a Fisher King-type character. Uh, The Fisher King is the guardian of the Grail Castle in uh, the Arthurian legend and the works of Chrétien de Troyes and later writers, And he sits in a boat and fishes all day because he's wounded and can't do much else. Uh, But he is sustained by the Holy Grail, which grants him a natural long life. Uh, Gollum similarly is in seeming anguish most of the time. He is one with this wasteland, as you said before. He is the sort of steward of the wasteland. And he is sustained unnaturally by a supernatural object of power like the Grail. And like the Fisher King, he has quite the preoccupation with fishes. So I just wanted to point out that very interesting comparison there. I had to mention it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. Um, What else you got? Um, This is an amazing uh, and and rich text for theme. Um, One thing that I wanted to call out was in a dialogue between Frodo and Sam as they're on their journey, Sam is telling Frodo a story, one of the legends of Middle-earth about one of the Silmarils, these holy jewels, um, to sort of cheer him up as they're on their way. And as he's telling the story, he realizes that Frodo received the gift from the Lady Galadriel, the star of Arendelle, and he realizes that that's the star from the story he's telling. And he says to Frodo, we're in the same tale still. Uh, It's going on. Don't the great tales ever end? And Frodo says, no, they never end as tales, but the people in them come and go when their parts are ended. Our part will end later or sooner. Sam says, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales told by the fireside or written in a great big book with red and black letters years and years afterward. And then he says of Gollum, I wonder if he thinks he's the hero or the villain. It's an incredible moment of uh, you know, meta storytelling here. It's Tolkien winking at us because obviously we're reading the tale of uh, Sam and Frodo and Gollum, and that tale is one in a, a web of tales that Tolkien is spinning for us, but it's having these characters reflect on the importance of what they're doing uh, and the importance of this history as it's being spun into reality in the moment. Uh, something that keeps coming back within these texts is this sense of what story will be carried forward of these actions? What will we remember of this great war for the soul of Middle-earth? You know, we talked about this in the last episode, and it's worth revisiting here that 
fantasy in a Tolkien sense, which is a way to say fantasy starting from Tolkien and all fantasy going forward is one in which the myths end up being true. They end up being literally true. So here we have a character trying to comfort another character in a time of darkness by going through lore of old and discussing it and realizing they're holding a token of that lore of old. And what is the, um, you know, the light of Arendil? Did I say that right? Arendel, yeah. Arendel versus the actual ring of power versus the sword that Aragorn wields. But relics of these actual myths that are legitimately true in a, a historical sense, these actual things happened, the magic is real, and those stories carry on and go forward. And I think that's a hallmark here of a Tolkien-style fantasy, is that all of the myths, all of the legends, they're actually true. It's the same thing with calling the Fanghorn Forest Entwood. Turns out there are actual Ents yeah, there. that we've forgotten, yeah. And Gandalf says to King Theoden, like, you knew what that was, you know the answer, you just weren't listening to the tales and the stories anymore. And that's one of the things that separates it from the reality that we live in, which the myths and the legends and the stories, while containing symbolic truth, don't ever really have any literal truth. So I think there's that one connection there that they make saying, oh, we're holding another piece of these legends. Then the other layer that I understand that, which I think is also an interesting moment there are, it seems that our characters are somewhat aware that they are in a story. Yeah. And being aware in the story and that they are part of a story tells us a few things. They say that they have one part that will continue. So they recognize that they only have a piece of a longer story to tell. And then the other aspect of that is that it's fundamentally optimistic. Yeah. To say that, yeah, you know what? Great deeds can be remembered and passed on. And even if, you know, we fail, even if we drop our task, we are just one piece. We're just one part of a story that's going to continue. Uh, as they're walking through, uh, after they've left Faramir's uh, hideout, they come across a fallen statue of a king, and there are flowers that have grown around the king's head, and as the sun shines on it, just as the sun is about to set, uh, Frodo looks at it and says, the king has got a crown again. They cannot conquer forever. Another theme I think that is very present uh, in this particular part of the story is uh, just a reminder of the temporariness of all things, of our bodies, of all of these characters who will only play one small part before they move in and out of the story as these relics carry on forever. Uh, but evil can't last forever either. Good can't last forever. It is a constant struggle, and one thing that we can't lose sight of is hope, is the sense that they cannot conquer forever. Yeah, and I think that is a theme in the second half of the book as well, which is how do you endure in these circumstances? There are no Treebeards or Bombadils coming to the aid of Frodo. It's Gollum. Yeah, It's a duplicitous, psychotic maniac who wants to help you only as much as they want to murder you in your sleep. Yeah. You know, so that's, you don't, Frodo doesn't get the supernatural aid in this. In fact, the supernatural force that comes at the climax of this book 
is a vicious spider in a cave that's trying to kill and mutilate them. So in a certain lens, we could say, man, this book gets dark for these characters. These characters descend into the cave. And in that cave, they end up, one of them ends up paralyzed in a literal sense. And the other one is so stricken with grief, they get paralyzed in a symbolic sense. Yeah, yeah. Sam doesn't know what to do. The only thing he does is he takes the ring and he puts it on to hide. Yeah. So he runs and hides. And so he is symbolically paralyzed where Frodo is literally paralyzed in this. And one could say, man, this is a really dark ending. But all of the events up into this point show that there is a sense of a true right wrong that can transcend borders, convention, and law. It tells us that there's virtue in being compassionate to the pitiful and that it's still worthwhile to look your enemy in the eye and try to forgive them and try to help them and try to work with them, even knowing they're going to stab you in the back at some time. And even when they stab you in the back and you are either literally paralyzed or symbolically paralyzed with fear and guilt and doubt, that there's still a reason to carry on. There is still a shining star in your pocket that does leave one's sense with a sense of like fundamental optimism thematically if not the plot point, man, because it's grim. This The end of this book is dark. Yeah. It's really, really dark. And it's darker than the, the end of Fellowship was dark. You're like, oh, Frodo's going to go out on his own. Boromir tried to kill him. End. Yeah, that's dark. And this one's just like, oh, Frodo is captured by the orcs. Sam has the ring. And he is outnumbered literally surrounded by enemies everywhere he goes. And there is no way out. Yeah. And that is also dark. But thematically, this gives us lots of reasons to hope. And the thing that I meditate on that is because oftentimes things seem very dark now. In fact, they can be very dark. You could be living in chaotic and turbulent times as we currently are, you know, 2020 America and throughout the world, there's a lot of reasons to feel despair and to think, man, there's not a lot of hope. These characters, the way that Frodo and Sam and Gollum and Faramir interact, because that's really it. There's not a lot of characters in the second half compared to the first. No. The way they interact fundamentally gives me hope about the human condition. And it tells me that at the end of the day, we can still, even if we're paralyzed in fear, we can still go forward. Sam thinks to himself after he realizes that Frodo is alive, uh, after he realizes that he's taken the ring from his dearest friend uh, and that now his friend is being taken by the enemy, he thinks to himself, don't trust your head, Samwise. It's not the best part of you. I think that epitomizes a lot of what we've talked about tonight, about the difference between uh, law and regulation and a higher truth, a higher morality. Don't trust your head. It's not the best part of you. And until next time, friends, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.